Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fully Books, the Hidden Gems author podcast in which Craig Touch, the owner and founder of Hidden Gems, and myself, Roland Hume, uh, chat to some really special guests about this wild and crazy business we're in of self-publishing and being self-published author. Today, we are very, very excited to have a special guest, Alex Cuovo, uh, who is an editor and she is bringing so much information and wisdom to uh, to what we do as self-published authors, because editing is one of those vital, important steps that really can elevate it from like somebody who's just trying to make a name for themselves and somebody who makes it. And uh, Alex has written two fantastic books, The Big Picture, which is a revision checklist, and No Hero Wants to Save the World, about raising the stakes in your story. We'll save that for another time. Today, we want to talk about editing and uh, everything that she brings to the picture and the perspective she brings. So Alex, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing this morning? I am doing fantastic. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And now, of course, we have the man himself, Craig Touch, the owner and founder of Hidden Gems and author himself. Good morning, Craig. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, so this is uh, this is cool because it's, um, you know, you're an editor, but the book itself is on revisions, right? So revisions, in my mind at least, are uh, sort of your self-editing that you do, yes. right? It's yeah. not the editing you give to someone else other than, you know, maybe developmental editing you could give to somebody else. But in general, we're talking about the revisions you make on your book. You know, the fact that everyone says your first uh, your first draft is sort of you're telling yourself the story. And then the second draft is where you you want to write the actual book. That's something I always had problems with when uh, when I was writing. I, I always want that first draft to be perfect. And so I spend 14 hours on every paragraph. <laughs> but uh, that, that's the wrong way to do it. And uh, Alex is here to tell us about the right way to do it. That's right. So let's let's hear about that then. Okay. <laughs> no, well, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say a great start off maybe would be in my own writing career. I know that I reached a stage where, uh, you know, I was getting dings and stuff for, for typos and things, even though I'd scan it myself. So I hired an editor and that was like the first step to really becoming a proper writer. And then it was a case of revision checklists where editors would tell me things that I would need to address in my own writing their own story the own characters and that took it up to another level so maybe you could tell us about that yeah and that that is um, an interesting point because most writers are good at writing a rough draft most of us have um, many of us have done national novel writing month or we do word sprints with friends and um we can put word in front of a word in front of a word. That kind of isn't a problem. And then the other part that you were just talking about, Roland, is the copy editing part, the part where you're fixing your grammar mistakes and you're, you're using good, good grammar and word choice. But there is a huge gulf in between those two things um, that um, a lot of writers struggle with because we haven't been taught how to do it. So, you know, when we're in, um, even if we have like a degree in English, you know, we're, we're always focused sort of on that critique group model where we're looking at the sentence level writing or we're looking at the paragraph level writing. So to step back and look at the book as a whole and figure out where are those 
big changes that I need to make, that's something that writers just don't know how to do. They just haven't been taught. And so um, I wrote the big picture revision checklist as a way to help writers. I wanted to empower them and to give them the knowledge and to say, okay, here is how you do it. These are the steps that you need to take to sort of almost do a developmental edit on your own book. And that does seem incredibly valuable. It's, I think to a certain extent, when we get into writing, we have a vague idea of like what a story is because we grow up hearing stories and you know they kind of have the structure. But it, I remember it, it changed my life when I like identified the different points of a story. I'm like, oh my goodness. And those, yeah, it really does take it to the next level. Yeah. So what are the things in the checklist? I guess, is it, um, you know, I don't, I, are you printing out a list and then actually checking it off? And is that something I should have on my whiteboard or, you know, or, <laughs> you or like. Could. You yeah. could do it that way if you wanted to. Um, I called the book the Big Picture Revision Checklist, but it's so much more than a checklist. It gives examples and it gives explanations of how and why you want to do these things. But it, it also gives a system that you can follow. Because I think that's another big issue that a lot of writers have is they don't know where to start. So for a lot of writers, what they do is they just open their, their rough draft of their manuscript and they look at chapter one and they try to make chapter one perfect before they go on to chapter two. And then they try to make chapter one and chapter two perfect before they move on to chapter three. And the problem with doing it that way is first, most writers who try to revise that way never really finish. And the other problem is, is that you're always looking at the small problems. You're always looking at the paragraph level and the sentence level, and you never take a step back and look at the book as a whole. So by having a checklist to follow and by having it broken down into sort of the biggest issues first, that really helps writers get a sense of what is my whole book? And how can I make the entire thing better by making those big changes that I might have to make? So it's broken down into 20 steps. And they're focused on the protagonist, the antagonist, the stakes, and then the plot. So you kind of want to look at things in that order. Okay. And so if you were to talk about what the biggest problems are, mm -hmm. <laughs> what would they be? Because it does sound like uh, you were describing how I used to write uh, when I started. <laughs> and that is exactly it. I would, you know, do it chapter by chapter and try to make everything perfect. Um, and yeah, I agree. It's not the best way to do it, you know, and I eventually figured out better ways to do it. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that um, I always found really helpful with when you when you finally can just do that first 
crappy first draft, right? Everyone says okay. your first, just get it done, right? When you can do that, I think that it makes a lot of, uh, it helps a lot because the second, you know, you, you're, unless you're a total plotter who is, you know, every beat of every chapter is laid out in Scrivener or something like that, right? And I'm not, um, you know, you're going to come up with things later that you didn't really mm-hmm. set up earlier. Yeah. You know, there's all that stuff, right? And if you're trying to self-edit as you go, and um, make that first first draft perfect. It just takes forever because you you know you get to chapter four and you, you write something and you're like oh yeah, I got to go back to chapter one and set that up yes. right. Whereas you know eventually I, I personally I don't know what the real the proper ways to do it you know but I would put notes right you know in chapter four saying okay go back and you know and I'd highlight those so that I can easily find them later to go and fix it on my second provision right so but what are what are the big things and what are the best ways to to do that because I'm sure I wasn't doing it the best way well if it works for you yeah then that that would be the best way for you um but perhaps that wouldn't be the most efficient way because then you're you're making multiple passes and you're doing multiple loops through the story over and over again right um I think an easier way to do it is to focus first on the protagonist. And um, first of all, is this protagonist a hero? Is this protagonist likable? Is this someone that the reader's going to want to spend 300 pages with? Um, Even if you're writing an anti-hero, is there something about that, that person that is compelling and relatable? Writers often have this very vague idea that their character is a good person or a nice person, but that kind of isn't enough to carry a story. The person has to have more than just good and nice. They have to have heroic qualities. They have to have something that they can do better than anybody else. Even if that's just something small like I don't know, they're the best babysitter in the neighborhood or something. Um, And um, I think uh, writers kind of get into a situation where they're writing characters that um, aren't larger than life enough. So then that makes their plot suffer because this character is sort of put into a small situation because it's a small character. Um, The other thing about a character is that they have to want something. And that seems like a very basic thing. Of course, the character wants something. But you would be shocked at how often manuscripts come to me for editing. And I don't know what the character wants. And I have to go back to my writers and I have to say, please, can you just tell me what the hero wants? Because it's not really on the page that I can see. And then usually they can tell me verbally what the hero wants. And I'm like, oh, okay, you need to put that on the page. You need to make it super duper obvious what the hero wants. Because as soon as the hero desperately wants something, then the reader's going to want it for them. So I, I, uh, go ahead. I I heard one uh, thing that was deep. It's not what characters want; it's what characters need, and they're kind of like Absolutely. a subtle thing. Characters want something, and yep. you know, I I want I want a 
a Bentley or whatever, but you need, need something. You need to save your kid. You need to save the cat. You need to save the world or whatever. And that's, yeah, it adds a lot more stakes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's the external stakes, which is what the hero wants. And then there's the internal stakes, which is what the hero needs. So um, after you look at character, after you look at the hero, the next place to turn is to look at the antagonist and to make sure that um, the antagonist is a worthy opponent to the, the hero or heroine. Um, are they stronger than the heroine? Are they more ruthless than the heroine? Do they, does the antagonist have wants of their own? Um, it's a little bit different when you are writing a romance novel. Romance novels have a very uh, difficult structure because the two halves of the couple, the hero and the heroine, are acting as antagonists for one another, meaning that they are the ones that are forcing the change in the other one. So romance is kind of a special category because it's a, it's a difficult um, structure. But um, nevertheless, you need to have an antagonist that is worthy of the protagonist. After that, I tend to take a look at the stakes that we already kind of touched on a little bit. Um, how big are the stakes? How can you make the stakes more meaningful? And only then, after those things are in place, would I take a look at the plot. Because the plot, a lot of us start out by looking at the plot first. This happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. But the problem is, is that if you don't have those other pieces in place first, um, your plot isn't necessarily going to work. And that's going to make you have to do a lot more revisions on the back end. So if you've got a, a strong heroine and a worthy opponent and high stakes in place, your plot is going to be easier to formulate. And so when you're looking at plot, when, when you're revising, you should look at your biggest scenes first. So rather than trying to edit chronologically chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, look first at those highlights, at those great big turning points that happen in the novel. Make sure that they're on the page and make sure that they are full of action and drama and emotion. So the big turning points that you should be looking for is, first of all, do you have a hook? on your opening chapters? Do you open with a hook? And second is the, the first big plot point that happens about, you know, 20% of the way into the book. Um, you know, like in The Wizard of Oz, that's when Dorothy lands in Oz and has to take the yellow brick road to the Emerald City. Or in The Hunger Games, that's when Katniss you know, volunteers for the Hunger Games and gets shipped off to the capital. So that's the first plot point. The next scene to look at is the midpoint scene, right in the middle of your novel. Does that midpoint scene have a twist to it? Is it filled with action and emotion and drama? Have you raised the stakes at the midpoint? The next scene to look at is the all is lost moment. 
So that's when everything is a is terrible and it's about as bad as things could be. And that usually happens about three quarters of the way through a novel. And a lot of writers try to skip the all is lost moment. We love our heroes and heroines very, very much. They're like our best friends and we don't want to see them suffer. So a lot of times what happens is writers will try to just glide past that all is lost moment. They won't, they'll, they'll try maybe not to let their heroes suffer too much or they won't let them suffer for very long. So I would say that is a, a huge problem in a lot of manuscripts because you really need that low point. You need that all is lost moment so that the, the hero realizes what they truly need and they they have the courage to go for it because they've been brought so low and then of course the the uh, the next scene that you need to look at is the climax of your novel um have you delivered the kind of climax that your genre demands so if you're writing a thriller have you delivered an epic showdown between the protagonist and the antagonist if you're writing a romance, have you delivered that wonderful grand gesture that we all love so much and that reconciliation with the couple? Um, so I would say, look at those five big scenes first when you are editing, because those are kind of the highlight reel of your novel. So if you've got those five scenes in place and they're doing everything that they need to do, the rest of the novel is going to be a lot easier to revise because you're writing the scenes that build up to that big uh, scene. And then you're also writing the fallout from that big scene. So in a nutshell, those are kind of the steps that you would go through um, if you were following the big picture revision checklist method. I imagine there are people listening to this right now who are like, well, we haven't even gotten to the editing yet. But what you're talking <laughs> about is the editing, the much bigger picture. Right. Um, I am a developmental editor. So this is my skill set. This is my wheelhouse. I can help writers figure out how to put these big pieces into place. Yeah, it's definitely a big picture uh, point of view that you're looking at. So I think you're you're. Uh, book is titled appropriately. I think that, you know, uh, for some of those, like, I know a lot of the times in, in the case of, uh, you know, the all is lost moment, you know, when I was writing uh, a book and I didn't put something like that in uh, at first or whatever, but a lot of the times the reasoning for me was like, you know, I can think of some great reasons why all is lost and everything seems like it's, you know, falling apart. But then I'm like, but I can't think of how to get them out of it. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I'm always thinking of it. And then I, every time I do, it's like, oh, that's cheesy. You know, this is a hack, you know, oh, it's, it's all a dream, you know, like all those dumb ones. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely know that that is one of the biggest parts of, of writing and especially in romance where I was writing. Uh, it, that was the thing, you know, it's usually the couple is, you know, that, everything now seems like they, that, that's, it's the end, you know, yeah. they can't get together after all. And then of course you have to figure out how they actually can't. Right. And then, uh, 
you know, obviously, yeah, the climax generally being when they do get together, when they get married or they whatever, right? So, or if you're writing erotica, then the climax is the climax. So that's a totally different thing. (laughs) So um, if you were to, like, how would you even, this is such a big picture, right? So how would you even start, um, like, doing it, right? You know, I've got, I'm done my first draft. And now you're saying, okay, now look at this and look at this and look at this. And you're like, okay, I've looked at it all. So where, like, how do you really start, you know, physically? Okay. This is going to seem counterintuitive, but the first thing you should do after you've written your rough draft is, well, you should celebrate because um, it's huge. It really is huge to finish that draft. Um, And then you should put it away for a little while, at least 24 hours, longer if you can, because there's a lot of emotion involved in finishing a rough draft. I mean, that is a high when you type the end at the end of a rough draft. I mean, I just always, when I do it, I always feel like dancing around the house. It is such an emotional high and you need to come down from that emotional high before you begin your revisions, because you need to look at your revisions which, with a much less emotional and more logical side of your brain. So the first thing you should do is put it away. After you've let it rest for a little while, the next thing to do, I would say, is you have to emotionally come to terms with your revision. And what I mean by that is revision is really messy and uncomfortable because when you were writing your your first draft, you were just, as, as you said, Craig, you were just telling yourself the story. You were having a wonderful time doing it. You were right there up close and personal with your characters. Um, and so then to then switch over to that logical brain and start tearing stuff apart it feels bad. A lot of times we some, we feel like, oh, I'm making it worse instead of I'm making it better. And um, I like to picture, um, you know, that children's game Jenga, where you're stacking the wooden blocks on the towers, yeah. and then you have to pull one block out at a time and stack it back on the top. And if you're not careful, the whole thing's going to tumble down. So when I'm doing that big, big revision, it feels like a game of literary Jenga because you're worried that if you pull this block out, the whole thing's going to fall apart. Yeah, for sure. I totally, I totally agree with that. Actually, I just played Jenga with my daughter two days ago. So. <laughs> but um, and wait, I won too. Let me just make that clear. But anyway, so here's the thing. I totally agree with that. And, and I find that... Um, it is confusing, right? And yeah. what I often do, even when I'm writing short, you know, blog articles now or whatever, and, and I'm sure that, you know, this is, again, not the best way to do it. But I find, you know, my brain is very scattered, ADD, you know, can't focus, can't remember. I have terrible memory. So when I start rewriting something, a lot of times I'm like, I just, I copy you know, and I paste and then I start rewriting that second one. But I have that first one (laughs) just in case I forget stuff or I messed it up completely and want to start over again, right? Instead of just 
like destroying it and then being like, yeah, the first one was better. Or I, I don't even remember now where I was going with this, you know? So, and then to now to say, do that over a whole novel, it's so much harder. Right. And that's why I sort of, I, I totally agree where it's like, it's confusing. You're pulling out these parts and you're rewriting them and you got to remember what you did up here and over here. And it's, that's, it's yeah. tough. Right. Uh, yeah. I always say a novel is, is a big thing and it's too big to hold in your head all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, that's very true there really is there really is there's too many parts to it you know and especially when you are the writer to you know and to have to spin all those plates of characterization and plot and stakes and all the scenes that you have to write and still get the emotion in there it's too much to hold in your head all at once it's got to be on paper um, and and I love Craig that you save your first copy and make a duplicate of it, and then you work on version 2.0 in a separate document. I think that is great because that also calms you when you're writing. If you start to feel like this is overwhelming, this is too much, you have that security of knowing that you still have version 1.0. It's not been touched. Exactly. So that is that is a great thing to do. Um, the other thing that you need to do before you begin is to block out time for a revision. This is a funny thing that writers do. They block out time to work on their rough draft. And then when it comes to revision, they kind of just think the time is going to appear. That, oh, I'll just do the revisions, you know, 15 minutes here, 10 minutes there. I'll do it on the bus or I'll do it in my off hours. And they don't realize that doing the revisions takes that same kind of focused concentration over a long period of time. And if you don't block out time to do that revision, it's not going to happen. I think it takes more mental energy to do the revision than to do the regular first draft. The first draft, you're just pouring everything out onto the paper. I don't care. You know, like, I know, I'll fix this later. Um, but then later comes and you've written yourself into a corner, right? Where you're like, oh, I said I would fix this later. I don't know. I'm going to fix that. <laughs> you know? So that's yeah. right. That's right. And um, scientists have shown that decision making is very tiring. We get tired from making decisions which explains why I'm always exhausted when I come home from the grocery store. That explains so much. Yeah. Because I've made too many decisions. But um, revision is just a series of decision after decision after decision. And, you you know, just you're doing that focused concentration and that decision making, and it is very tiring. So you have to block out time for it when you're not going to be disturbed when you're not distracted when you can really really focus on it yeah it's definitely it's part of the it's part of the writing process like i mean i don't know if if i'm booking time to write a book you know the revision is the same same thing it's the same block of time i'm not done when i write the end on the first draft and like you said like yeah i definitely would take time between the drafts. I think it, you know, you're kind of a masochist if you like write the end and then jump back to the beginning <laughs> and be like, okay, time revise. <laughs> you know, there's no way. So uh, I, I mean, you know, I don't know how, how long I used to wait, but I was pretty happy to stop when I wrote that first one and then just take a mental break from it. And, you know, you come back to it with fresh eyes too. And, uh, yes. you know, it's it's kind of like when you write something and you sort of have 
the idea in your head of certain things that you maybe didn't really convey but those because they were all in your head and so you're like assuming everyone knows it right and then you write and then later when you come back and it's no longer fresh in your head and you read it you're like I don't even see where I was going with this so definitely the reader is not going to know either you know it gives you that fresh perspective yeah I always say that time is the best editor yeah. It's funny because you you do know that sometimes you read it and it's like oh wow this is good yeah just where it's nice <laughs> that that's, that's true that's true I've gone back to old things that I've written so long ago I don't even remember writing them and I'm like impressed I'm like I wrote that that's cool <laughs> <laughs> that's good yeah yeah I think another problem is that um, when when we're sort of um, in our public writer persona let's say we're on Twitter or we're hanging out with our friends doing like writing sprints or something. Um, There's a lot of support that writers get for, for racking up big word counts. You can go on Twitter and you can say, Oh, I wrote 950 words in the last hour. Or you can, you know, tweet like I wrote 2000 words today And people will chime in and say, wow, that's great. Good for you. That's awesome. Way to go. And and you get so much support for that. Or you can be doing writing sprints with your friend and you can say, oh, let's see how many words we can get in an hour. And then you check in at the end of the hour and you give each other high fives because you did so good in your writing sprint. But you don't have that same kind of support for the for the revision process, especially that that big developmental edit that you do, um, you know, you could go on Twitter and you could say, "I figured out my antagonist's motives today," or you could go on Twitter and say um, something like, I, "I straightened up my story stakes today," and you would hear crickets because there would just people would not know how to respond to that. Like they might say, oh, that's good, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, if you even if you were to uh, keep it in the context of of word count, uh, during revision, you might be like, so my manuscript is down 400 words today. (laughs) And then are people supposed to applaud that? I don't know. Right, right. It's funny, your mug that you're drinking from right now says write without fear, edit without mercy. And I mean, that's it, you need to go in uh, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Neil Gaiman who said that you have to like cut half your words. Mm-hmm. And that's brutal. But it's once you do it, often you read it and you're like, oh, this is so much better. Yeah. Yeah. This is my favorite coffee cup. The one that says <laughs> right, write without fear, edit without mercy, because that's just that's just I what was, you have to do. Uh, every night I read to my kids and I was reading my daughter uh, a self-published young adult book and it got to the end. It was a good book with good characters and things. But one thing was the author kept uh, she kept explaining everything that the characters did. It's like mm-hmm. we must go to the the the, uh, the restaurant, she said uh, confidently. And then uh, I agree we must go to the restaurant, he observed slyly. And it's like, let us go. And I started, just as a joke, we started acting it out. So it's like every time we'd say that, because you don't need these things, but writers in our first draft, we put them in and then we're like loath to get rid of them because, you know, our words are our babies and we don't want to, but they're not, it's not good. I mean, when you have, yeah, he observed and I would hold up my eyes and go like that just to (laughs) to see, point out how absurd it was when you're actually reading it out loud. 
So when, when you were reading it out loud, did you start sort of editing as you went? Did you sort of skip some of those adverbs as you were reading? I found I did actually. And there are other yeah. sections like this author would have like huge sections of like song lyrics and stuff like that, which is wow. a no, no. And it's kind of like, and that was the case where it's a good book with good characters, lots of potential, but the editing just wasn't there. And that's why it's never going to be elevated to where it has the potential to be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Could have used an editor. <laughs> but yeah, so, I think. Yep. I was, I was I was speaking of that. Maybe that's the thing. What at what point do you go to an editor? I have found that many um authors who are going to self-publish, uh so they they're they're doing all the right things. They they're 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 doing their research, they're 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 intending to self-publish. And they say, okay, I'm going to hire a developmental editor to look at this book to make sure that it's as good as it can be before I self-publish it, which is awesome. But I think the big problem is that a lot of writers try to hire an editor too soon in their writing process. Um, editing, there, there's no way to sugarcoat it. Editing is expensive. It's very labor intensive and it takes some expertise and it's not something that a computer can do so it's expensive and um i think for for writers to get their money's worth out of that edit they need to take the book as far as they can go themselves before they seek an editor they should look at that book and say I have done literally everything that I can do to make this book as perfect as I can make it. And now I'm going to look for an editor. I think of an editor as rocket fuel. So if you have a rocket that you have built and it is sleek and it is aerodynamic and every piece is in place and all the seams are welded perfectly, when that editor puts that rocket fuel on there, the rocket is going to go into space. It's gonna just fly, you know, sales, reviews, acclaim, it's gonna be great. But if you give your editor this half built thing with pieces kind of um, broken off of it and you know the seams are not welded properly and it's not aerodynamic at all, it doesn't matter how much rocket fuel that editor puts on that rocket. It's never gonna get off the launch pad. It's just gonna burn to a crisp. <laughs> so, so that's that a is, very good analogy. <laughs> so that's my that's my take on editing. I would say if you want to work with a developmental editor, you should um, work with your beta readers first. So, you know, tap writers that you know to give you a good beta read and then go back and do the revisions based on the beta read. Um, and then once, once it's at that level, that's when you would then give it to a developmental editor. That's a really interesting perception. We did a great podcast on on beta readers because 
uh, and, I, and I imagine because they're familiar with the characters and they're familiar with the settings and familiar with you as a writer. So what they can contribute ha has a lot of value. Yeah, absolutely. Beta readers are worth their weight in gold. It's it's absolutely fabulous. Yeah, and I, I agree. You want to do that first because, uh, you know, you don't want to you definitely don't want to do editing. You don't want to do two passes of editing <laughs> you no. know, because uh, you're going to go broke. But um, uh, you know, you could do two passes of beta reading if you needed to, and some some authors do, uh, especially if there are if they identify a lot of things that you need to change, and you agree, and you change a lot of stuff, you you almost have to send it to them again to make sure that everything you've changed still makes sense, and right. you know, so and then send it to your editor for that yeah. so final polish, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the difficult things, though, when you've got an editor who might not be as familiar with these things, maybe the changes they make can, uh, can muck it up. How do you go around finding the right editor? It um, it's hard because not every editor is right for every book. So, um, for example, I have certain genres that I I'm passionate about, and there's certain genres that I do not edit. Um, and then you also have to find an editor who's a good fit for you. Is there is their working style the kind of of edits that you need? I mean, are are you the kind of person with a really thick skin? And if an editor puts a snarky comment in the in the margins, you'll just laugh about it. Or are you the kind of person who um, you know, it's an edit's really difficult for you. And and if you if there was a snarky comment in the in the margins, you would just be devastated. So you have to find that editor who's going to be a good fit for you. Any honest editor who is working on a freelance basis should give you a sample edit for free. I will edit the first. 30 pages of your book for free. And, and at that point, you can decide if you want to hire me or not, because maybe we're not a good fit for each other. And 30 pages is a good amount to, to see if, if, if that's going to be a good working relationship or not. You would be amazed at how much you can tell from 30 pages of a novel. Um, I have an editor friend who gives a 10-page sample edit. And personally, I don't think that's quite enough, but she insists that 10 pages is the perfect amount. So I say, hey, if it's working for you, that's great. Yeah, you know, I agree. We, we, if we have an editing service through Hidden Gems and uh, that is something that anytime um, an, uh, an author that we haven't worked with um, wants to use the service, that is something we always say is that we we want we almost insist on doing that free sample edit um because not just uh it's not it's a two-way street right like yes. you know it's not just whether the author is happy with the with the edit and that's obviously key but from the other perspective the editor has to be happy working on and with the subject matter of the book and the author that is there you know they might hand in a manuscript that the editor just really is, you know, maybe they're not interested in it. Maybe the content is not something they agree with, you know, or like, or whatever. And they just don't want to work. Or maybe they, they look at it and they're like, this is beyond, you know, 
what I want to do and what I want to handle right now. You know, sometimes what you get as an editor, I'm sure, you know, there's probably been some manuscripts where you're like, I don't really have the time to rewrite your book, you know, which is what, what the level is right now. And then you can either turn them away or you can talk to them and say, you know, you need to work more on this or, or maybe I'll do it, but it's going to cost you a lot more, you know, like whatever. Right. But you have to have from both, from both sides, I think you need that buy-in. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I think, um, you know, like you were talking about the level just isn't there. I mean, that's definitely a case where the author has sought editing too soon in the process. So yeah, that happens sometimes. Um, I have had um, authors approach me for editing and I had to turn them down because it was a genre that I'm not, um, I'm not skilled at editing. So, um, because every genre has its own conventions, its own language, its own, you know, themes that it, it, that it deals with. And so there's just some genres that I'm just not skilled at. Um, I've had to turn down others because, um, the subject matter was frankly offensive. And I said, oh no, uh, you can't pay me to edit this. You, <laughs> you literally cannot pay me to edit this. Um, but most of the time it, it works out beautifully. Most of the time writers who come to me for editing, um, they, they're, they're in a genre that I represent and they're familiar, you know, I, there's something I'm familiar with and I'll, I'll do that 30 page sample edit and then the writer will say, oh, yes, that was a valuable, that was valuable feedback for those 30 pages. I would like to have the full book edited. Right. And I mean, some some edits, uh, especially some genres, I guess, like uh, nonfiction, uh, just take longer because yeah. you have to do a lot of fact checking. And oh, yeah. That, right. And then in that sense, like when we have to do those, we usually charge more because it just takes the editor way longer to um to fact check a lot of the stuff uh whereas you don't have i mean somebody's writing a fantasy novel there's no facts to check they're making the facts up as they go right Right. you gotta check for consistency that they're not changing their facts but uh but you're not having to like go out and and research to see whether or not the claims they're making are true or whatever right right I, i think it's also worth mentioning that uh i think some writers uh especially when they're starting out they kind of assume it's almost like advertising. You buy Mark Dawson's course to learn about advertising and you assume that's going to fix all your problems. Whereas right. if your book's not any good, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on advertising, it's not going to sell it. I think sometimes with the editors, it's like, oh, I'll hire an editor, they'll fix it all and then it'll be perfect. And then they place the responsibility for the success of their book on the editor. Whereas, yeah, it's incredibly time consuming. I used to do editing and it's like, it takes longer to edit than it does to write. Yes. And then there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure because you want to get everything right. I mean, there's nothing worse than having a client who comes back and is like, oh, there's a typo on this page. And you're like, oh, because you have to have a level of perfection. That's the, the level of, of pressure you have is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't I don't um, I am not a copy editor or a proofreader. And um, my clients know that up front that I am the developmental editor. I am the big picture editor and I always tell them you're going to need a copy edit after I'm done. <laughs> so and often more pairs of eyes can be can be really yeah. advantageous. Right, right. I mean I know that um in traditional publishing they usually have three levels of editors. They usually have the developmental editor and then the copy editor and then the proofreader. 
So, and, and that's something that I do with my own work. I, I hire a separate proofreader who's never seen the manuscript before. And her job is just to proofread and fix all my darn typos. Brings these fat fingers. Oh, I, I swear typos sneak in after the copy edit's done. <laughs> they do. They're at him, man. Yeah, sneaky <laughs> buggers. Um, well, we are unfortunately we are nearly out of time already, uh, but we definitely want to have you back because we want to talk about the other topic, which is raising the stakes, character motivations, things like that. I've got so much, I have so many things I wanted to say that uh, obviously we didn't want to because we wanted to d divert the the course of this. But Alex, thank you so much for for coming and joining us. Where can people find you? Where can people check out your editing services? Where can people check out your books? Just tell tell us everything. Uh, if you go to alexcorvo.com, and Corvo is spelled K-O-U-R-V-O, at alexcorvo.com, you can find out about me, about my books, about my editing services, and you can also find me on social media. I'm at Alex Corvo on Twitter and Instagram. That is wonderful. Now, Craig, do you have any final words and thoughts? I, I think that um, you know this is this is the kind of topic that I think a lot of authors are uh, are going to be interested to to learn about, especially if they aren't really familiar with the revision process um, from a perspective of how to do it right. You know, other than just I know after I write the book, I gotta sort of go over it again. You know, <laughs> but it's more than that. Um, and I think, you know, if they, if they want to learn more, you know, they should pick up your book because, uh, it sounds like you've laid out all of the, all of the big picture steps, as well as maybe some of the small picture steps <laughs> and made it, uh, in a way that they'll be able to just follow along, which is, I think what a lot of people need, they need things laid out in steps as opposed to just hearing somebody say, you've got to just do this and do this and do this, right? And then they're like, I don't know where to begin. So it helps to have it all laid out that way, right? Well, thank you so much, Alex. Um, and we really, really look forward to, to having you back. I think people who've been listening to this podcast are going to be uh, find a lot of value from it. Uh, we shall wrap things up now, but if you are listening right now, if you haven't done so already, make sure to click that subscribe button, leave Alex a comment down below, uh, tell your friends, share on social media, everything like that. We appreciate everybody who tunes in and hopefully we provide you with a lot of value and we will be back next week with another episode of, uh, Fully Booked. So we look forward to speaking to you then. Cheers. Cheers.